This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Luis Alfaro, who is a playwright. His new play, world premiere, The Travelers, is playing at the Magic Theater in Fort Mason Center, February 15th through March 5th. Luis Alfaro is the author of several other plays, including Oedipus El Rey, Bruja, which was renamed Mojada, and The Golden State Delano. Oedipus El Rey played twice at the Magic, 10 years apart. His plays have been at the Public Theater in New York and several other places. There's also a film from 2011, which I want to talk about, From Prada to Nada, the former playwright-in-residence at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and you're now in the faculty of USC. Is that correct? That's right. Before we go into your career, which is fascinating, let's talk a little about The Travelers. It takes place in a nearly abandoned Catholic monastery somewhere in California near Fresno in Grangeville, which has a population of 49 and someone stumbles into it, and that is all I know. So talk a little about the play, what it is, and also, when you're talking about it, what you're trying to do here without giving away any of the plot, of course. I am so excited, you know, first of all, just to come back to the magic. I've had a long, long history with the magic and also a long, long history with trying to get into the magic. So, you know, I think of this work, The Travelers, as a kind of piece that lives for that theater. It's really kind of been created for the company. And it's a, a company that is experimental, but also, I think, very much reflective of the environment of the land. You know, I'm writing these California plays, and I've been doing them now for over 10 years. And this is a piece that I've been writing with these actors so the actors' names in the play are actually the names of the actual actors too. And so I've just been building story, story, story. But it's a, it's a very simple tale about a, six men in an order in Grangeville. And one day, a guy who is the least likely candidate to show up at an order, he's been shot in the chest in a bar fight in Sacramento, lands on their doorstep. And that sends them on a journey of discovery, but also the naming of oneself and the reason why uh, we choose callings the way we do and who is called to spirituality. And so it's really kind of, um, to be quite honest, it's my pandemic play without ever talking about the pandemic. But it is about my two and a half, three years of, you know, if you work in the theater, everything shut down in a very extreme way. So it was my three years of real isolation. I live in a in a very, very crowded, a very dense neighborhood. The most dense neighborhood in the Western United States is called Koreatown. It's in Los Angeles. I think my neighborhood has 42,000 people per square mile. The average American city has nine. So you could just imagine that I live in a very crowded neighborhood. So I had to really choose isolation during the pandemic as a way of kind of getting through COVID. So, you know, I think that had an effect on me in terms of thinking about why I was making art, who I was making art for, what kind of art I was making. And also, I've always written about spirituality because I was raised very, very religiously. I had a father who was very Catholic, so I was an altar boy, and a mother who was very Pentecostal. 
And uh, they both agreed on their religions. And so we practice both, which is intense for a young man, a young boy to participate in. And uh, so I've always been drawn to stories of spirituality and calling. I think of writing as a calling. And I think because I was raised religiously, I think of them in the same way, right? That in some way I was called to do this thing called writing. I was a poet for over a decade. And then I was in the performance art world for another decade. So coming to playwriting took a long time. But when I finally arrived here, I kind of found an alchemy. So I think in some ways, all of those elements sort of show up in the play. I'm always hesitant to talk about this as form, but I think I've written a poem that is masquerading as a play. It's written in poetry form. It, It has a series of monologues in it that are detours that are examinations of character. I love the spirit of experimentation that goes on at the Magic Theater. It's the theater that, you know, was made famous in many ways by Sam Shepard. And I really sort of subscribe to that sort of idea of playing with language, playing with word, playing with idea and metaphor. When you come see the play, you will see that it's setting this sort of non-traditional. It's a set that's a beautiful set made of California earth and uh a bathtub and a toilet, which are the places where men in this order kind of express themselves in their most private moment, right? So really kind of trying to write for myself in my my loneliness, but also in my reimagining of myself in the last three years. You said that you began working on it during the pandemic. Let's go back to that point and the origins of the place. It's March 12th. You're in Koreatown. Everything is going fine, though you've heard about this pandemic. The Magic has just opened a new play, which is about to close four days later. What happens to Luis Alfaro, and what brings you out of L.A. to a more isolated location? Or were you just isolated in L.A.? Well, you know, I think I'm a very, very social person, and because I work in the arts, And, you know, I'm a person of color. What I do is I develop the audience for my plays as well. So, I'm, you know, I'm a community organizer. I'm involved in the local politics. I'm involved in the politics of the state. I sit on a ton of panels. So you can imagine that, you know, and I also travel a lot because my plays get done all over the country. So what was happening is I was really, really busy and I was teaching. There was a joy in teaching. I do have to say that I had some friends who had gone to Sundance that year in January. And they had all gotten sick. We had started hearing about this, this infection, right? And so people were getting sick probably before March. You know, people were starting to realize something was going on. And so by the time that March hit and the school did a kind of radical, uh, drastic measure, which was to immediately stop classes and throw us all on Zoom, I remember the day so well because I said, listen, I'm going to show up to the class and be there for you. And if you need to show up as a kind of like transition for yourself, we'll all wear masks. We didn't even know about masks then, right? I said, we'll all wear masks. And, um, you know, just so you can, we can get clear about what the Zoom thing is going to be like. And only three students showed up. So we were there and we were kind of like socially spaced. And I remember we were in one of the science buildings and I thought, okay, now everything changes right? And the next day we went on Zoom. And that was a kind of nightmare to sort of figure out with a bunch of students, right, in classrooms and and classes. 
And then the art world very quickly started to either do what you were saying, cancel, or just, you know, get rid of productions altogether. How many plays at the time did you have ready for production? Was there any play about to open? Were there rehearsals at that point? Well, I remember that the last production of Mojada, which is my adaptation of Medea, was in production at St. Louis Rupp. And they had just announced that they were going to stop things. And the play had its final night, got to play all the way through. And the very next day, the actors had to pack it up and fly out immediately. And so I remember that as a marker because my play got to run its entire run. But of course, the audience was already worried. So that happened. And then there was a whole series of offers from theaters that were like, well, we we can't do your play live, but maybe we can do it on Zoom. I had a commission with the theater. I wrote a play for children with a company, a marionette company. A really beautiful company called Bob Barker Marionettes. It's 100 years old. And so we were trying to figure out how do we do a marionette show on Zoom that is kind of supposed to be interactive for kids. So there was a lot of those kinds of questions going on. And then quite naturally, the theater was like, let's not even deal with this. We'll get back to you when we when we get back here in a few, few months. Because that's what everybody thought, right? In a few months, we'll get back into the theater again. And so... You know, they've just gotten back to me three years later to say we're we're starting to program again, you know? Yeah, that is really the way it works. So somehow in that two and a half, three years, I got very busy. I went around the world. I taught, but I went around the world on Zoom. So, you know, I I tried to stay busy because I live alone and I live in a a kind of small apartment here in Koreatown. And I started to feel the the constriction of the place. So I took every gig online that that anybody was offering. So I went to all over the country. I gave keynotes for like different organizations. I started teaching in China. So I would get up at three o'clock in the morning and do that class. I think I was a little desperate to stay busy just so that I wouldn't fall into the trap of what seemed to be a very depressing period. Luis Alfaro, you did stay in LA the entire time then. I'm by myself. So literally when I got in my car, I went up and down like Highway 99, for instance, and there was really nobody on the road at the time. So I was sort of loving traveling. Quite honestly, the first trip I took, I slept in my car because I couldn't get into like a, even a Best Western or anything like that, you know. And then I remember that they slowly started to, you know, do these things where they were opening up slowly and things like that. But yeah, I remember that first trip because I tend to get very involved in my research. So I love placing a play in a very real place where I can understand something about the temperature, about the environment, about what's there, the population. So I love that because it really does feed the authenticity of a play. There are references in the play that I just wanted to make sure I was getting right. So yeah, I was taking a lot of trip. So I was trying to keep myself out and about, to be honest. At some point, you must have gone up to Grangeville and thought about this monastery. My family is a Central Valley family, and so I am a, a, a child of parents from Delano, California. My father's from Mexico. My mother is what they call a Californio, right? So many, many generations in the U.S. And farm worker stock. So Delano, uh, Tulare, Visalia, Hanford, Fresno, all those towns. Grangeville popped up, and it was a place that was very familiar. Um, I've been to Hanford many times because... Um, uh, Mr. Matsumoto, the famous uh, farmer poet, has a farm there, a peach farm. So, you know, I, I've done those trips a lot. 
And then I read an article about the church closing down a lot of parishes, a lot of schools, and a lot of orders, uh, the Catholic Church, because it couldn't afford to keep them open. And then that started to become sort of central part of the story. And, you know, I think what happens for a writer is that um, people always say, well, you know, what's the one central point of your story? But I think it is it is uh, compounded by a lot of things you read at the time. I went back to visit Lorca uh, because I just wanted to read his plays. And I read The House of Bernarda Alba. And I read it in Spanish because I understand Spanish. So La Casa de Bernarda Alba is such an interesting story about repression and isolation. And I didn't realize that it was going to have that effect on me, but I read it and it was chilling because, of course, it's about really about, you know, dictatorships and regimes and things of that sort and how they have effect on people. But what an interesting time to read a, a, a play like that, right? Uh, when you shut down a society. So I, I think they all kind of played into my notion of it. And then the Ojai Playwrights Conference called and said, would you, would you, would you like to just like do some, or do some of the work online on Zoom? And then you can meet some actors and play around with it. And then um, that's kind of where I started. And the ACT in San Francisco offered me Sometimes, so people are being very generous and saying, like, even though you can't be here, you can be here in other ways, right? You can talk to the dramaturg, you can talk to a team, and so there was a lot of that going on. And I love the development of a play. I feel like a play, when we get to first rehearsal, as we just did recently, is the way I announce it. I say, this is a document that is a proposal for how we might work together. But actors are going to inhabit and breathe life into it. They're going to take those words and, and put them in the actual 3D, the depth of space. We're going to hear these in people's mouths for the first time. And so when that happens, everything changes, right? Designers join you and a director, Catherine Castellanos, who's a wonderful actor as well, Bay Area. She joined. And it's so, you know, there's something that happens in collaboration. And somebody who, who came into my own as a poet it is a joy to be in a field where you hardly ever work in isolation. You're always in community. You're always in collaboration. So I build things with actors, with the director, with the designers, with the dramaturgs. The more the merrier. I'm, I'm very much about the communal experience of making a play. Once it's all gathered, once you have the rudiments of the play, at what point did the Magic Theater become involved? Well, the magic's been involved since the beginning because Sean San Jose is a little bit of a brother to me. And Sean and I have been on a journey now for about 25, maybe going on 30 years of collaborations. His company that he's one of the co-founders of in the Bay Area is called Campo Santo. And when Sean took over the artistic direction of the Magic Theater, he asked me to join him on the journey as a kind of, you know, writer that would produce or present something. So we knew we were going to do something and I had been building it and I had been building it with Sean in mind because, you know, there are actors, there are certain actors that I just work with all the time. I love them so much. He is a great translator. He's a great interpreter. He's a great channeler of people's work, Sean San Jose, the actor. But now he's Sean San Jose, the artistic director, and he couldn't chomp on a play as an actor and also lead. So he said, you know, I'm going to be present, but I won't be present on stage with you. And so I really started to build it with him, build it around actors that he knew, people in the company. 
And so a lot of these actors I've known for many, many years. And that's been part of the joy too, is to write towards an actor's strength, to write towards an actor's abilities, the way they use language. So I don't mind. In fact, I love it when I am able to rewrite something towards a, a, a skill or a gift that an actor has that enhances the work. For instance, there's an actor in this play. His name is Quinan Valdez. He's the son of Luis Valdez, the famous playwright from the Teatro Campesino who wrote Zoot Suit. Quinan has a very specific Chicano voice. You know, he is very much of San Juan Bautista, very much of uh, archetype and agitprop theater, right? And so I wanted to honor that voice that he brings into the room. And so a lot of the adjustment in my text is really built around him, you know, in many ways. It's built around his character, the way he delivers language. He's a very mesmerizing and commanding presence. So I had to elevate the language a little bit to match him as an actor. And I love that. You know, I love when an actor comes into the room and that is part of the challenge. You know, they use words different than the words I'm using. And how do I rise to that? Yeah, the pandemic plays a role, kind of a subtextual role in The Travelers. But we're also going through a period in the United States and certainly during the period part of of the shutdown when fascism is on the rise and uh, racism is on the rise, homophobia, anti-Semitism, and it's being propagated by a party, one of the two political parties that has moved over the line toward fascism. Does any of that play a role in your play? Or again, is it just subtext? Or can you just simply put it aside and deal with the spiritual ends of the play? I don't think I'm giving away a lot when I tell you that these gentlemen who are in this order have all come to the order for different reasons. So one of the the kind of joys for me of this play is that it asks the question is who is the actual person who's called to this kind of spirituality? So when that guy shows up with the shot in the chest from a bar fight in Sacramento, he seems the least likely candidate for a, an order, religious order, or is he actually the most likely, right? And so the play is asking Exactly these questions, right? And I think you hear a lot about what's going on in the country through how these men have arrived and the kind of lives they're living. I kind of address some issues of mental health. I kind of talk about the drought. I talk about uh, capitalism in a way and economy, California as a kind of uh, extraordinary site, not just for for culture, but also it's always at odds with each other, right? It's always, it's always struggling with itself and its own expression. And uh, as, a, as a Chicano, as a Mexican-American who loves and uh, expresses myself about the state, I'm always in a, in a state of frustration politically, right? Because with just exactly these notions of what's going on in the country, the contradictions are enormous. And, and oftentimes we are, of course, the victims of, of the kind of policies that get erected and done. And really, that's why I came to the Greeks, right? Because the Greeks allowed me to to wrestle with things like immigration and, you know, uh, poverty, the violence of poverty. And this piece is kind of allowing me to explore 
why people run away from their lives and what are they running towards? And do we think there are answers in the notion of organized religion? Yeah. Luis Alfaro, let's go back to your childhood now. <laughs> uh, you, <laughs> you already mentioned your parents and growing up as you did. What brought you to theater and was that an offshoot of activism or did the activism come later? Well, I'd always been an activist because, you know, when you have farm worker parents, you are very much immersed in the United Farm Workers. So I understood activism. I feel like I came to art by way of uh, finding a means to create social change. I wanted to change the world, right? So poetry was a wonderful way of being able to express myself as a young artist. And I love the poetry community, especially in California. I got my start in the Bay Area. I, you know, I was one of those guys who would like do a weekend of gigs and you'd go to City Lights, you'd go to Modern Times, you'd go to Different Light, you'd go to the lab. You could do a whole weekend of readings and developing work and Mission Cultural Center was a very important part of my life. Being a poet was great because there was no money involved. There was no competition. It was just expression, right? But a hard way to survive. And then performance art just happened to be an offshoot of that. And I love the performance art world because it got me, um, if poetry gave me the country, allowed me to sort of tour and stay on a lot of people's floors and do readings around the country, performance art allowed me to sort of discover the world a little bit. How did you get from reading poetry to performance art? And what was that transformation? Well, you know, the transition between the two there was a moment in, in California art, which we called the multicultural moment, right? 80s and 90s, where there were a lot of spaces that were entertaining a lot of different kinds of work. Mission Cultural Center, there was a place called um, Theater Arteau, uh, The Lab up on Divisadero. So you could go to these places and you could do more than poetry. You could do spoken word. You could also do a, a version of, of a kind of exhibition. And so the connection between movement and text, sound and movement, right? My body and poetry uh, started to make a lot more sense. I was a performer, right? I wasn't just a writer, I was a performer and, and I was able to perform the work. So I was dealing a lot with image and language and movement. And it feels like along the strip, uh, especially in California, you could do a lot of things in LA, a lot of things in San Diego, a lot of things in the Bay Area. And then you could keep going, you know, all over the country to experimental spaces. That was a very rich time. And so I was exploring, right? I was definitely a person who loved to open for other people. There's a wonderful artist in the Bay Area named Guillermo Gomez Peña, who's a fellow MacArthur with me and I used to open for him on his tours and you could do that and kind of discover a lot of places. There's a documentary called In the Pick Me Up about the LA coffee house movement and you're in it. What was that movement? It was a coffee house. It was really kind of extraordinary and they had this wonderful charge. They used to say, you know, come do 10 to 15 minutes of new material. And I was one of those people. I was very ambitious and I uh, still am. And I just, every week I wrote new things and I would go and kind of workshop them and put them up. And you were in a community with other people who were very ambitious too. And there was a wonderful charge of creating new things. There was a place called Highways Performance Space in Santa Monica. It's still there. And so you, you had a lot of places to just go and make new work. 
And for me, making new work was also like, oh, can I write a one-man show? Oh, can I try to do a little film? Oh, can I be uh, the subject of a museum piece here, right? So I was doing crazy things. I, for instance, as an example, I even modeled furniture. I was a live piece of furniture for an experimental uh, furniture maker, right? So, you know, it just was one of those great times where you could do all of that. And one day on a lark, I was doing a show. I used to perform my poetry in a black slip and in roller skates. I used to roller skate and it was ridiculous. And it was a midnight in an underground club. And uh, a director came and he brought his friend, which is like, this is me name dropping now. And the, the director's name was Oscar Eustace, who now runs the public theater in New York City. And his friend was a young emerging playwright named Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America. And Oscar, Oscar and Tony came to see me and Oscar said, um, there's a woman who's coming to town She's a well-known off-Broadway writer, playwright. She's Cuban, and she's very well-known. She wrote a series of, of, of very famous plays. One was called Fefu and Her Friends, which was just done this year at ACT. She wrote a play called Mud. And so I said, I didn't know anything about really about I love theater, but I didn't really know about the experimental artists. And so he said, you should come study with her. She's going to be in L.A. I said, well, does it cost money? And he said, no money. And I said, okay, well, let me go check it out. And, you know, in the first session, I knew I had found my mentor. So Marie Irene Fornes was, is, was an amazing teacher. And she uh, basically kind of created a generation of uh, especially Latin American writers who wrote for the American theater. So everybody and their mother was in that program. Um, Octavio Solis. I mean, so many of the people working now in the field, Karen Zacarias, there's all these people who do stuff in the regional theaters. So Irene just had a tremendous effect on me. And I went into that workshop and I wrote a scene and I thought, oh my goodness, this is the thing I should be doing. Why didn't I know this? <laughs> and it just made sense. And she was one of those extraordinary teachers who was, you know, not the kindest teacher, but the most effective teacher, you know? These classes, how often do they happen? And I mean, were you all sitting around in a circle, like, say, a book club kind of thing? No, it was very interesting. Irene had put together a workshop in New York at a place called Intar, which is maybe one of the most famous Latin American spaces in New York, off-Broadway. And she'd done a writer's group there. And there's a guy now, actually, who is the cultural czar for the city of Oakland, Roberto Bedoya. And he was one of the first people in her workshop. And so what you do is you would do an hour of yoga, and then you do an hour of writing at a table all together, interconnected. And then you would read for an hour and she would talk and give you notes and things of that sort. And so she created a writer's workshop that was very, very disciplined, very regimented. And it met every other day. It was really a way of life that she was showing you how to live and work in the theater. And so I did the first, I think, six weeks every other day. And then she left and then she came back. And then I just kept always going back to her. But sometimes she would do a whole week long every day, bring something in. And I wrote a play that got produced off Broadway. I wrote it all in her workshop. And so she just had this, this extraordinary gift for being generative, right? For showing you how to write and trust yourself and not be too... Um, to slow about it, you know, to get into your subtext. How did you make a living? 
I have had every single job that has ever existed, I feel, you know, quite frankly, because I was raised in abject poverty in downtown Los Angeles in a family that was, you know, a migrant family. I worked in a factory when I was a kid making carburetors for cars at an age when you shouldn't do that. So I was like 14. And so I had always worked. I've actually only been unemployed one day in my life. I've never collected unemployment insurance, which I've always wanted to. I've only actually been unemployed one day in my entire, since I was 14, 15. During the time you were with Irene, it sounds like that was a full-time job. That was a full-time job, but then I had a job, right? So you had multiple jobs. I was, you know, I was editing magazines. I was, uh, at one point I was, uh, I did little food critic uh, writings for the LA Weekly, which was our independent paper. I had a column in something called the LA Reader. I was a phone sex operator when that was a big thing. I, uh, you know, I, I did it all. I mean, I can't, literally any job that would pop up. When I finally got an agent, I was still very hungry. And my agent said to me, Disney is looking for somebody to write a poem for the opening of a, they're planting a tree in their park and they want a kind of commemorative poem. And I was like, I can do that. I can do that. And she goes, what do you know about trees? And I said, I know nothing about trees, but I know a lot about what I could do with $5,000. So, you know, it was that kind of like, you know, the hunger for making money and never being unemployed and paying my rent. And I never went without paying rent or any of those things. And, you know, my parents are so proud of me because I never had to borrow a cent, but I always took a crazy gig, you know. Luis Alfaro, at what point did you and Loretta Greco of The Magic get together? How did that happen? And I think Oedipus El Rey was the first. Yeah, you know, Loretta Greco was very important in my life. I actually met Loretta many years prior because that's the way the American theater works. So I was one of those playwrights who had a little play called Straight as a Line, and it was a little two-hander. And I used it as a kind of business card play, meaning I would go to all the major regional theaters. I spent a lot of time in Chicago as another theater. At one of these festivals... I met Loretta. I had seen a production she had done at the McCarter Theater in Princeton in New Jersey. And then we were at a, a theater called South Coast Repertory in Costa Mesa, California. And she was working on a play and I was working on a completely different play at this festival. And everybody was introducing themselves. And she said, my name is Loretta Greco. I looked at her and then I said, my name is Luis Alfaro. And she looked at me and she said, oh my goodness. And so we started talking and she said, I'm kind of coming to L.A. I had done a, a workshop with her of a play at the Public Theater in New York City and just loved working with her. She is um, she is hard and exciting and fun and joyful, and she's very playful in the room, and I just I had such a good time. And it was amazing because the play that we did at the Public Theater, our boss during that time was Philip Seymour Hoffman, the actor, who sadly passed away. And we just had such a good time building that play that I think she said, you know, come to the magic. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I have this play, you know, that I've, that I've been writing. It's about the prison system and I want to do it. And it's a California play and it, it's a Greek adaptation. I'm in love with the Greeks. So we did a trip to the Getty Villa in Malibu and did a lot of research and then got clear about what our journey was. And um, and then the rest was kind of history. And then she just said, what else do you want to do? And I had an idea for a Medea, but I hadn't written it. And she goes, well, I have one slot and I want to fill it. And she goes, do you have any any language or any scenes? I said, I have a title. It's called Bruja. 
<laughs> and this is the only time she ever did that. And she announced the play with me not, not having written a word. And then, you know, it was so much fun because that's my favorite way to work, right? Just to just get in there and build. So I remember that I wrote one scene. We read it at her house and the playwright Octavio Solis, who I adore, read it. He came over and we had food and he read the one scene and it was uh, Aegeus. And uh, it was so much fun. And then I just started building the play. So I stayed at her house and I was in her guest room for seven days and I wrote two scenes a day. And I walked out at the end of the seven days with not a great play, but a complete play. I love that. I just love the working like that, right? To just uh, something sitting inside of you and write it out. And then you, the art of writing for me is rewriting. So it's really that I could just get all this out and then we could start to build a play, which is always fun. And then after that, it moved on and you changed the name to Mojada? Yeah, so I did this play at the Magic and it was really about magic. It was really about uh, a sorceress, what we call a curandera. And then I got to Chicago, and in Chicago, I was doing a production of Oedipus El Rey at the Victory Gardens Theater, and the director, Che Yu, said, I want you to go to this area called Pilsen, which is kind of like the East L.A. mission area of, of Chicago. There had been a series of shootings. 46 people over a Labor Day weekend had been shot. It was very disturbing. Gang shootings. And so there was this group of grandmothers who were standing on a corner from midnight till six in the morning in orange reflective vests, you know, those construction vests. And they would just have coffee and bread and kind of sit and talk. And all the shooting stopped because nobody's going to shoot grandmother, right? And so I was there hanging out with them all night, just doing research. And I met a young woman who was undocumented, a dreamer who had come over. And she told me the story of her crossing from the, from uh, Central America to the U.S. And it was so horrific. And I thought, oh, Medea's journey. I wonder if I could make a map of the original Medea's journey and then make a map of, of this Medea that I want to write. And that's what happened. And then this story demanded that I rewrite Medea. Don't ever do that. It's the craziest thing in the world. I cannot believe that I wrote Medea twice. <laughs> but the second one is the right one. You know, and that is what happens sometimes that, you know, you start and then it shifts and changes. And the second story is the right story. It's really a, a play about migration, right? There's a third play called Electricidad. Yeah, that was the first play, Electra. It's an adaptation of Electra, Electricidad. It was done at San Jose. It was done, it's actually had about 50, I think it's on its 59th production. And it had a major production at the Goodman Theater on the main stage in Chicago and at the Mark Taper Forum at the Music Center in Los Angeles. It's had some pretty amazing productions, and it continues to get done. Um, there was three productions last year of it. And, and then it started getting done in Europe, you know, in, in other great places. I love the play. It's probably not the strongest of the three, but it's because I was just learning how to write plays. But I just loved writing it. It was so so joyful to do an adaptation and something that uh, I do this community service work uh, as part of my, my own art and activism. And I was in Tucson, Arizona, working with kids, 12 to 17 year old, two years old. And it was teen girls in like a youth correctional facility. And I met a 13 year old girl who had murdered her mother. 
She had murdered her mother because uh, the mother had put a hit out on the dad who was a drug dealer from the south side of Tucson. And I was so horrified because she was the most wonderful young poet in this workshop. She was 13. And that night I went to the Arizona Theater Company to see a play. I remember it very well. It was a Ludlum, Charles Ludlum play called The Mystery of Irma Vep. And I walked out and they had a little bookstore and they had 10 Greeks for $10, a dollar a Greek, pretty good, a bargain. And the first play I read was Electra, the story of a young girl who murders her mother to avenge her father's death. And I thought, oh, my God, here we are a thousand years later with the inability to forgive. The desire for revenge is bigger and we will destroy ourselves. We will destroy our families and we will destroy our communities. So the play is about uh, gang culture. It's about why gangs exist in the first place. After you wrote that, it became kind of a thought process that would lead you immediately to Oedipus. Yeah. Once I wrote it, the people at the Getty Museum were like, oh my goodness, you know, we saw it. We like it. Why don't you come talk to us? Right. And I went to talk to them because they were just thrilled that, you know, the, the classics are severely in need of, um, reimagining to to some degree because you want younger artists to understand them. And so they were just thrilled that I had been able to do a kind of like clean adaptation of one. And so I went and met all these scholars and I even gave a keynote at the, the classical conference, uh, you know, that they have every year. And then it just became clear that I thought if I could figure out a, a, a way to enter a play through a modern lens, I can do this adaptation. So for Oedipus, it was North Kern State Prison. And I started to think Oedipus is actually the story of a young king. And I read a fact that said that more than half of all young men who go to a state prison in California will return at least once in their lifetime, the recidivism rate, the return to prison rate, right? So more than half of all young men go back to prison at least once. Why is that? Is that where the new kingdoms are? So my Oedipus is in prison. And he's telling a story about how he used to be a young king. And it's being acted out by all these prisoners. And so that immediately kind of shifted. And so the, the Greeks have been very, very kind to me. And I've loved discovering them and figuring out how I tell an ancient story to a very modern audience. And how did From Prada to Nada come about, the movie? There's a wonderful filmmaker, a woman named Fina Torres. She directed a film called Woman on Top in the Bay Area with um, the Spanish actress Penelope Cruz. And she came to see Electricidad at a theater. And she said, oh, my goodness, I don't write screenplays, but I, I'm a director. And I have a project with Sony Classics. It's an adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen's. And she goes, and somehow I think you might do well with this and so i said well let me you know i knew sense and sensibility but i said let me read it it's been a long time so i read it and i and then it, i thought well these could be two young women rich women latinas and they lose their father and they have to go live with their grandmother in east l.a and so it's called from prada to nada because they once they were once rich and you know what happened is that sony classics said Oh my goodness, we love the idea, but we think it should be for tweens. I didn't even know what tweens are. Do you know what tweens are? People between the ages of like 13 and 17? That is a humongous marketing audience that, that sees a lot of film. So we adapted it for really for tweens. And it stars a young woman named Camilla Bell, who was 
uh, was a young model and then a, a wonderful woman who was in Spy Kids and Wilmer Valderrama from that 70s show. And what happened is that that journey of learning how to write a screenplay and also just writing a, a low-budget film and staying with it all the way through was so incredible. And, you know, just the other day, my friends always make fun of me because they hate the film. And it's a very commercial, sweet film for kids. But you know what? The other day, I got a check for $450 because it gets streamed so obvious and, and so much. And then the, the most hilarious thing is somebody called me from Manila in the Philippines because they have a Prada Tonada film festival every year where they run the film for 24 hours straight <laughs> at a theater. I loved it. I loved it. But, you know, it's very low budget and I wanted it to be something else. That was my first screenplay and it was really a joy. But, you know. You realize, of course, that most people write screenplays for years and they never get them produced. And you write one and there it is on the screen. It's exactly that. I said I wrote it and then it just started to snowball. You know, it only made like three million in the U.S. on its debut. But what happened is it made a ton in the Philippines and Australia. So we had sold to all these markets, right? In Spain, it was a big hit. So what happens is you don't think about these films in your in your kind of domestic market, you think about them in a larger, larger kind of world market. So in China, it played because it's a very friendly film, and then it was on Netflix, on Hulu. So you know it, that film has been like at my lowest financial moments. There is a little res residual check that shows up that sometimes is you know a hundred dollars, and sometimes it's seven hundred dollars. So I don't poo poo that. It was a wonderful journey, and I learned a lot. There's also a short film called Chicanismo. Chicanismo. I did it for PBS, our local PBS station here in Los Angeles that at the time was called a KCT. And um, they commissioned it. And it is a film where I play one, two, three, four. I think I play five different characters. Two of them are women. And I worked with a wonderful uh, makeup artist and a costumer from films. And, uh, and I asked an experimental young filmmaker that I knew from around town to uh to film it and it got nominated for an emmy award so you know go figure right i mean i wrote it quickly it's uh about 17 minutes long and it's all about different you know sort of different ways of looking at at uh, chicanos in the u.s and then it won the the san antonio film festival you know it was nominated at the san francisco film festival so it kind of did the film festival circuit and so never poo-poo those things. In fact, I was just telling my students today that I did a spoken word CD many years ago for a company called SST Records, which is a punk rock label. And they didn't have any poets on there. And I pitched it to this punk rock label. And I said, you guys should do a spoken word album. And they, they were like, oh, all right. And so I designed the cover, which is terrible. And then it won Best Spoken Word Recording in Australia. It had a, a really sort of incredible life. And I, I would travel at the time when I did my poetry readings, I'd travel with all my CDs and people would buy them like, like crazy. So who knew, right? Luis Alfaro, that brings up a question, a different question, which is that you have all of these plays, particularly the Greek trilogy. Have you thought, have you tried seriously to turn any of them into screenplays and see how it works? 
Well, I'm really a child of the theater. I mean, I really am a theater artist. And, you know, as much as I dabbled in film and television and I've done some television work and some film work, I think that um, if I did a screenplay, I would write a very specific original screenplay versus an adaptation of one of these. These plays are very theatrical to me. I love the theatrical space. I love what you're able to do in the theatrical space. So I, I love that, that there are two different ways of expressing yourself. They're a different art form, you know. I've just finally got my plays published, which is kind of a miracle because that, that took me like, you know, 40 years. So I just kind of think like if I, would, if I, did, um, if I did a film or did a screenplay, I would want to do something very original too that works for that medium. At this point, how many plays are there? Oh, my goodness. Well, I am the worst. You know, my agent will tell you I'm the worst that, like, I've never planned a career. I just had it. And so she it drives her insane. I'm with the Gersh Agency, which is big, a big representation agency. And they just they are always mad at me because I guess it's like 20, 25 plays. You know, I, I sort of imagine that I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So I never sort of stop to think about, like, I try not to look back. And I only try to look forward, and I know it drives my agent crazy, but I love the idea that I'm always in, in a generative state. I'm always creating. I love teaching, so I'm always teaching. And I'm always, uh, you know, initiating my work or somebody else's work. I just finished uh, a year and a half as associate artistic director at the Music Center in Los Angeles County, which is the largest regional theater in the Western United States. And I put together a season there, and I... I developed the work of 10 uh, women writers from the region. Equally as important to my work is also the, I think now I think it's like my agent just said, it's 170 new plays that have helped other people do. Luis Alfaro, how many plays do you have right now that you were kind of working on and seeing where they can go? On my wall right now, I have like six projects. I have three commissions that I got to do. So you can't get out of that. I usually kind of hit the first three and then the other ones are really kind of like dream ideas. You know, I did this children's play, this puppet play, and it's the first puppet play that involves a disability. So it's called Cha-Cha Charlotte and it's about a puppet that stutters. So I'm super, super excited about that. I was a major stutterer when I was a child. And partly I think it had to do with the violence that I grew up with in my neighborhood. And many years ago, I went to see this puppet company invited me, the Bob Baker company, to see their puppet show. And I went and it was beautiful. It's like old marionette puppets. So they're gorgeous, right? And afterwards, they said, could you stick around here because we want to show you a film? And they had a film on a reel, you know, like the old reels, right? And I sat down and there was a famous documentary for the L.A. area about a, a, this guy, Bob Baker, who would sit with all these kids. And he had a little boy and a little girl. And they were really extreme stutterers. And the puppets, when they talked to the puppets, they wouldn't stutter. Isn't that interesting? And so anyways, they're showing me the thing. And they said, do you know who the little boy is? And I said, yeah, it's me. I was the little boy in the documentary. That's how my family cured me from the stuttering. By going every week, I would go with this uh, student, a grad student in psychology from UCLA, who took me to the puppets to talk to the puppets every week. Once again, where is that going to be performed? That's the Geffen Theater in Westwood, California, Westwood, L.A. So I have that commission, and then I have a, um, I have a wonderful commission with the Getty that I'm trying to figure out, which is the next Greek. 
and uh, have an idea for a really great Antigone. But uh, the market seems very um, flooded with Antigones at the moment. So I'm reading a lot of Greeks right now. <laughs> How do you think theater is going right now? I mean, we were in the pandemic. We've come out in California. Some theater companies have folded. Some have folded, of course, because of, what is it, SB5? But generally speaking, where is theater going? Do you think new generations are coming back to it? What do you see? On the small scale, you know, because I go to a lot of smaller theater, there is something really thriving, a generation of theater goers, right? On the larger regional scale, like I think of Berkeley and uh, Rep and uh, ACT, I think of all the, we have a lot of regional theaters in the Southern California area because we have the Marte Performed, but we also have the Geffen, South Coast Rep, San Diego Rep, we have La Jolla, there's so many. I think that they're all suffering through a very difficult moment right now, which is the audience that they had, half of that audience has decided that they're not coming back. Could be age. It could be that they uh, reprioritized what their relationship to the arts are. And so there's a real moment of crisis, but also a real moment of possibility right now, which is this is the moment to take a great leap and decide who you want to invite and what kind of theater you want to do. Having just been at a theater for a year and a half, I have to just be really honest and say it was very disappointing to be at a $50 million theater and not not see them take a great leap in terms of next generation audience. It's scary. It's scary how much money people lost in the um, in the pandemic. It's scary to see half houses. It's scary to... Um, to not be able to do the investments that used to make, right? We're watching Oregon Shakespeare Festival is a, a place that's near and dear to my heart. I was there for six seasons, you know, the, they had a fire, then they had this, you know, it's really about how do you come back, but what do you come back to? So at the same time that there's a pandemic, there's also a moment of reckoning, social reckoning in this country, right? That's also been happening around race, around class, around access. So that's been really fascinating for me. You know, it's been fascinating to see what theaters are rising to the occasion. How are you going to get young people? Because the people that, that are the great subscribers, which is not a great model anymore for the theater, their kids are not coming in great numbers, right? So you have to really attract a new audience to the theater. And I think that really involves events and involves a great sense of uh, redefining what theater is, where theater happens, and what are the stories you want to tell. There will always be great storytellers. There are so many extraordinary plays. I wish, you know, I just sat on a, a number of important, really important panels for new plays, giving awards, and I was like, just thinking, wow, there's a generation of young writers and we're not seeing them because they lost two, three years of their, of their developmental life, right? Of their producer life. There's a young artist, a guy named Noah Diaz, who came out of Yale uh, Drama School. And, you know, he was telling me that he had a kind of hit play that he wrote in, in school, and it had a commitment to nine productions around the country. And then the pandemic happened, and all nine theaters canceled it. You think about a young writer who was in his young 20s, right? And this was going to be a big moment for him. And all lost, all gone. So how do we recover the arts? Who do we invite into the room with us? And how do you make it accessible? You know, it's getting more and more expensive. And it's not reasonable for most people. 
And how do you not make it an elitist art form, right? How do you make it accessible for everyone to be able to engage in it? And that is really the question of the theater right now. You know, the art is available. There are great plays ready to be produced. There is extraordinary work. It's not for lack of work. It is really about what is the risk that you want to take right now that you can take. And how do you get those people in the door? In San Francisco, there was a place called Piano Fight, and that was the perfect place. Young audiences, new theater companies, they're folding. Well, in Los Angeles, you know, we have an amazing, what we call, what we used to call the equity waiver scene, right? Which is really struggling badly. So you're watching a lot of cooperatives. You're watching a lot of companies uh, come together and work together. I work a lot with a, a small company here and they're, they've had to sort of rely on the kindness of a lot of people. But also, there's also been really exciting, you know, uh, formations. Also, somebody doing something in a parking garage, right? Somebody doing something outdoors in the summer. You're watching the L.A. Shakespeare Griffith Park. You know, so there are possibilities in other ways where you see that you can still make theater and you can still make a, a lot of theater, but you got to really think about who's going to come and how do you get them there? I just think that's the real big question. I wish I had some magic answer to say, if you made every ticket $20, everybody would come. But I don't think that's true. I think that you come to the experience because you love it and it's a great experience and you enjoy it and you want to come back. You know, I am teaching and I have record number of classes and my playwriting one is like, filled to the gills, and they're all wonderful, young, expressive artists. So there is a generation waiting to be produced, and what will be the spaces that produce them, right? And I worry, I really do worry, because I think that in some ways the big spaces are like big ships that have a hard time just making a quick turn, and the smaller companies don't have the infrastructure. So a lot of the innovative thinking that's going on, especially led by the Mellon Foundation towards theater, is around... How do we help you not commission new work? How do we help you with your with your organization? How do we help you solidify things like having a development director, a fundraiser, a managing director? Things that seem almost kind of organizational that are going to really plant you and ground you enough to be able to do the work in a healthy and good way. And a lot of these people have been running these theaters for 30 something years, completely on their own. Piano, it, uh, that theater you were talking about, there was another theater that just closed in San Francisco. I mean, the exit, the exit theater. I love the exit theater. I used to love to go there. Yeah, it's scary, right? But you know, with everything that closes, there is always the possibility of something that opens. That's the real dream here is how do you allow people to reinvigorate or to find a new space to make their work? You've been listening to an interview with Luis Alfaro, his play, The Travelers is at the Magic Theater in Fort Mason Center in San Francisco, February 15th to March 5th. For more information, you can go to magictheater.org. If you want to check out From Prada to Nada, you can find it on Freevee, which you can get to through Amazon Prime or on Roku. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.